This week on the Sport Blokes. This week, the worst possible time to do the Bartman. <laughs> as we discuss whether a crowd member can choke on an incident with about five different choke levels. Oh, yeah. And the USA men's soccer team find out who's their Trinidadi. Yes, doing the Bartman was very different when we were a kid. Let's go. So, Shui, I asked to take the new ball today because I just find this to be one of the most fascinating stories in modern US sport history. That's right, Nath. You're coming roaring in from the promenade end. <laughs> and it is a mixed metaphor because we're talking about baseball and not cricket, of course. This is but... true. <laughs> but I've been absolutely champing at the bit to talk about this one because it embodies so much of what it's like to be a fan. And I can actually relate to a lot of it, as I'm sure you and many of our listeners can too. Now, it's not just simply a choke. It really has it all. It has a playoff situation, a stadium pulsating with energy, bursting actually due to the fact that there were several people outside. In some cases, watching on a tiny TV perched on the top of a bloke's head in front of the crowd, altruistically holding it so others can watch. That's so, quite funny too. So an honorary sport bloke. Yes, indeed. Yes, real and truly. Definitely. We, we have to find this guy. It's also got the superstition of a team devoid of ultimate success for oh so long. It's got scapegoats. And indeed, in this case, a literal billy goat. It's got a chorus of fans shouting, asshole, asshole. What sports story doesn't need that? And of course, ultimately, it has the joy of victory versus the absolute agony of defeat. And these defeats hurt when the time between championships is literally multiple generations, with some poor buggers going an entire lifetime without seeing their team achieve ultimate glory. It can really fit into a number of categories, as I mentioned before, but we've actually chosen to pick it in the choke special for a couple of reasons. We want to think of things from the point of view of fans being in the action. So indeed, in episode 57 and in updates in episodes since, we talked about that case where the woman in the Tour de France caused a major crash and then fled the scene in embarrassment. Oh, Miss Alayomi Indeed, yes, yeah. yes. And that's a sport choke too for a fan. Maybe we'll look at that in the future too. But that's the one that came to mind. But this week... We're talking about game six of the National League Championship Series 2003 in the friendly confines of Wrigley Field and Steve Bartman. Friendly? <laughs> well, this is the funny thing. So, so let's start here. So traditionally, the Cubs were a bit of a laughing stock. And but for occasional chances here and there, every now and then, maybe once or twice a decade, they've been pretty crap. And so the crowds in the past have embraced that kind of we suck, you know, yeah. the, the lovable loser attitude. And that's partly why it, it, it's literally referred to the friendly confines of Wrigley Field. So you're right. That's another thing. This story is full of irony. Mm. And that's perhaps one of the biggest of all. So I guess to truly understand the complete impact of this incident, you've got to go all the way back to 1945. Billy Goat Tavern owner William Sionis brought his pet goat to Wrigley Field for Game 4 of the World Series but he was asked to leave after the goat was bothering fans, which is just <laughs> ridiculous. So 1940s. Oh, it's fantastic. Sionis was furious and he remarked, them Cubs, they ain't going to win no more. What a classic yeah, seven guy he Yeah, is. that's maybe not quite as uh, exciting a curse. It's not cauldron and uh, bubble bubble toilet <laughs> <and> trouble. <laughs> Eye of Billy Goat. Now, at the time, the Cubs led the series 2-1, but lost the World Series 4-3. So... The curse of the billy goat was born 
And as if that wasn't bad enough, the Cubs hadn't actually won a World Series since 1908. And this goes back to that thing. Like I said, there have been people literally lived long lives without seeing their team win. And yeah, this curse of the Billy Goat lasted right up until they beat the Cleveland Indians in 2016 for just their third ever World Series win. So it is a bit of a nice redemptive story and we will get there at the very end. And we're going to talk about sports curses in the future too. So we're not going to concentrate too much on the curse angle. But it is a very important part of the context of the story. Ah, Curse Angle, the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the solid... The gold medalist the, 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 in the WWE wrestler. The WWE, yeah. <laughs> now, I feel like, Shui, before you kind of get into the scenario of the game itself, we do need to kind of tilt our hand a little bit here. We're not massive baseball fans, but a couple of things to mention. One, this was around a time where I had a lot of spare time because I was a university student. So I was constantly watching Sports Center every day. All of, so procrastinating. Yeah, all the talking head shows, PTI, all this stuff. So I actually remember the story of this really well. Didn't watch the game, saw extended highlights, saw several stories and, and indeed Catching Hell. And I'm going to borrow heavily on that documentary. But I was exposed to the kind of greater news story that surrounded this. And I know you watched a bit around well, them too. This is about the time that I actually got into baseball for, yeah. for a fleeting sort of period because, again, I was at university as well. Yep. I was looking to procrastinate where I possibly could. <laughs> and all of a sudden, yeah, I found the Boston Red Sox and I, I really enjoyed watching the way that they played. But, yeah, this was sort of around that time as well. I think maybe the year before they took out the Yankees in that famous 3 nothing comeback, which we'll talk about. Yeah, another joke. In another joke. So again, yes, we're not massive baseball fans. I always joke about loving the idea of baseball. I, I struggled <laughs> to sit through a full game, but Quick Pitch is a really cool show. I, I just, I love the history of baseball. I love all the stories about it. And of course, this is a massive story. And as I said, Catching Hill is a great documentary. I'd encourage people to go out and watch it. But hopefully we do this story justice. And we'll ask some questions that I think really interesting and, and we'd be interested to know what our listeners think as well. Well, it is interesting because it transcends sport. It really does. And it's a human story. This this is one of, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a story about humans. Mm. So what we'll do, we'll fast forward to game six of the 2003 NLCS. Now quickly, Stewie, before we get on to the all important eighth innings of this story, there's something very important prior to that. And we won't look at it too much now because we'll look at it in a future curse episode. But during the seventh inning stretch, which is the fucking dumbest thing it's, in sport. It's weird. I, as an Aussie, we'll never understand. Get up and stretch whenever you feel like it. <laughs> Don't tell me to well, get it's up. Tradition. It's tradition. Oh, like, it's tradition. Uh, traditions die hard. But Bernie Mack, and I believe he's a Chicago native, he must be, when he was singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, instead of referring, now that traditionally the fans will sing the name of the home team, so they would have, and indeed they were chanting Cubs, Bernie Mack chanted, Champs! Champs! He said it twice. And in the doco Catching Hell, a number of people say, and this is before the incident even occurs that we're about to talk about, a number of people are already saying, with the team up, 3-0, oh, we're fucked. Bernie Mac just enacted the curse. Oh, Bernie. <laughs> May he rest in peace. The Cubs are playing the Florida Marlins and they held a 3-2 series lead. It's the top of the eighth inning. The Cubs are leading the game 3-0. They're officially six outs away from making the World Series. Now, I'm glad you've mentioned that, Stewie, because on Catching Hill, there's a couple of people that had cameras at the field and were kind of creating their own, I don't know, I don't know if documentary is the right word, but kind of documenting their experience. 
So that doco has this really rich kind of history. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's where that phrase always yeah. is. <laughs> but it has this rich kind of detail and experience of people at the ground. And there's some great footage. And the guy talks to camera counting the outs. And, and, and this is another curse as well. One of the things baseball fans will tell you is you should never count down outs. That's an interesting one there too. Now, Florida actually already had one out. So they're only five away now. We're already counting. <laughs> well, we can. We can after the fact. And Luis Castillo stepped up to the plate. Then the moment happened. Yes. Castillo hit a foul ball to the left field corner and Cubs left fielder Moises Alou looked in a really good position to make the catch, which would have left the Cubs four outs away from that World Series. Indeed. Counting down. Yes. That was until Cubs fan Steve Bartman leant across and snatched at the ball before Alou could glove it for out number two. Now, this is my first question, Stewie. How far did he reach over? Because it is line ball. It is very, very close to the wall. Oh, it is. I mean, I think it was in the crowd, but in baseball, you can jump into the crowd effectively and, yes. and catch the ball as long as you glove it. Exactly, exactly. So, I think it might have just been in by like a millimeter, just. But it was a very catchable ball. And indeed, Moises Alou's reaction is pretty bad, isn't it? Well, he immediately takes the glove off and throws it to the ground and starts yelling. Remonstrating, yep. So he's fuming. And Bartman sits down really sheepishly. And it's funny you sort of mention that. There's a rule in baseball whereby if an umpire feels that the spectator interfered with the play and that the fielder would have made the play, they can actually rule the batter out by spectator interference. But the umpire deemed it not to be the case. And this is a really interesting point here too. Now, I think one of the reasons why they maybe didn't deem it to be the case is because he's wearing a fucking Chicago Cubs hat. Yes. So he's supporting the home team. But the other thing is because they were looking for fan interference, they showed the clip so many times and from so many different angles. And it just kind of builds and builds and builds on just how sad and difficult this whole situation is. And with every replay, I imagine the fans are sitting there like, fuck, fuck. Well, this is fuck. interesting. This is interesting <laughs> too. This is really interesting too. So Wrigley Field didn't have a replay screen. So a lot of fans didn't actually oh, know what happened. Okay, yeah. yeah. But, but lots of people are getting phone calls. Lots of people are getting messages. As I talked about, there's this guy outside with the television holding it on his head outside. And that's how the arsehole chant starts. So the arsehole chant actually starts outside of the field and works its way into the ground as people find out who they think the perpetrator is. Now, another key thing I, I think is worth mentioning is lots of people go up for that ball. It's oh, not yeah. just Steve Barton. It was like eight or nine, I reckon. Yeah, there's a lot of people that go for it. Here's my next question. Would you have gone for it? Of course. Are you kidding? This is one of the things they talk about in baseball. You go along to have fun and you have a chance to catch a foul ball and take it home. That's one of the fun things about being a spectator at a baseball game is taking home a foul ball. I'm actually really interested that you say this because I like to think that I wouldn't have gone for it. And I like to think that you wouldn't have too, because we're pretty educated fans and we make sure that we're pretty respectful of the way games are meant to be played. Now, if my team's in the playoffs and it's a really important out. I don't think I'd be going for the ball. I actually think I'd be like discouraging others to go for the ball. I'd be like, this, this could be out. I don't know. It's, it's a very it's, easy it, thing it, to it say. It is, yeah. But yeah. I think in the scheme of what's going on and seeing the ball coming towards you, it would be kind of hard not to instinctively reach out to catch. I don't know. It's I, I, we'll, we'll never know. We, it's we, it's we pure won't. speculation. We won't. 
So in this Catching Hell documentary, there's this really interesting guy called Pat Looney, who's a local bar owner, and he provides some really interesting insight into the whole incident because he's only sitting a couple of seats across. And at one point, people think it's him. So he cops heat from the security, he cops heat from fans initially, and he's like, no, 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 it's not me. He said, and you can see the footage, it's so funny, he was going for the ball too until he realised it was catchable. And then he kind of like has this look on his face of horror and like moves his hands back. So it's an interesting one. We'll never know, mm. but yeah. So the aftermath of this gets really, really messy for the Cubs. Mark Pryor then walks Castillo on a wild pitch. So he allows Juan Pierre to reach third base. Ivan Rodriguez hits a single into left field, bringing Pierre home, 3-1. Yep, Pudge Rodriguez. Miguel Cabrera then hit a ground ball to Alex Gonzalez, who led all National League shortstops in fielding percentage. Routine double play to finish the inning, Right. Wrong. No. Wrong. Yeah. He closed his glove too soon and the runners advanced to load the bases. On the very next pitch, Derek Lee hit a double into left field to bring Castillo and Rodriguez in. 3-3. So this is already one of the examples of other really key moments in the match that aren't really talked about. I mean, arguably, this is a bigger error or has a bigger impact than Moises not taking that catch. I think you're probably right, actually, because that's something that he would practice hundreds of times a day as we've mentioned, he had the best fielding percentage in the entire league, basically. Yep. Lockdown shortstop. So, yeah, the fact that he's committed that error there is just almost unthinkable. And yet nobody seems to really put too much blame on him mm. or did at the time either. But it got worse. It did. Pryor was then replaced by Kyle Farnsworth and the next batter, Mike Lowell, was intentionally walked to load the bases. Jeff Conine then hit a sacrifice fly into right field for Cabrera to score and suddenly the Marlins lead 4-3. Farnsworth then intentionally walked Todd Hollinsworth to load the bases again. And Mike Mordecai hit a base-clearing double to left centre field to score Lee, Lowell and Hollinsworth. All of a sudden, it's now 7-3. to three. Farnsworth was then replaced by Mike Remlinger, who gave up a single to Juan Pierre, bringing Mordecai in from second base. And finally, Castillo popped up to shallow right field for the third out. It was now 8-3. to three. Yep, an eight-run inning. The Cubs never recovered and the score remained 8-3 at the bottom of the ninth. So it's a really great quote from the documentary, Stewie. Unfortunately, I, I didn't take note of who said it, but this guy says it took half an inning for it to turn from a Mardi Gras atmosphere to a funeral atmosphere, basically. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Well, it makes sense, I guess. Yeah. And, th and they do say the whole energy of the stadium changed after the Bartman incident. So although there's all these other things that happened after that and they just leaked runs, the wild pitch and the Gonzalez fielding error being the two biggest ones, Bartman seems to carry all the blame. Mm. When in actual fact, it should have been 3-1 at the end of that. Even if you allow for the Bartman thing, you're right that Gonzalez should have made that play. It's 3-1 and you're still three outs away from a World Series. Indeed. So it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Now, Shuri, I'm going to ask you a question and you've kind of answered it already, but we're looking at it from the fan perspective here. So we're looking at it from Bartman and, and I'm going to go further than that. But first things first, did Bartman choke? And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking maybe you're going to say no because you, you said that you would probably reach for the ball too. I mean, he dropped the ball, so... <laughs> he did drop the ball. That's the funny thing. He didn't even catch it. And he ended up covered in beer as well. He did, so. yeah. Well, they were hurling beers at him. I mean, he... It's... Oh, I think there was somebody else going out for the catch. Spilt their oh, okay. Well, well so. yeah, he copped a lot of beer after that too. It's really hard. It's really hard because I think at the end of the day, I honestly believe if I was in that position, I probably would have gone for it. Yeah. So... It's hard to say that he potentially 
did show. I don't know. I'm on the fence about it. It's an interesting one, isn't it? It is an interesting one. I'd have to say that the choke level's not too high, but I think he did a little bit. A couple of reasons. One, he was said to be a very big baseball fan. He coached a team. Indeed, he was wearing a Renegade shirt, which was the little league team he coached. He had his earphones in. He was listening to the broadcast. Now, one of the really interesting things on the documentary Catching Hell is that they talk about the delay, the slight delay on the radio. So he wouldn't have heard the fact that Alou had the chance to catch it until after it had already transpired because of the slight delay. So that's an important thing too. Here's my next question. Did the entire crowd choke? There's lots of talk about the whole energy of the stadium changing. I've talked about the Mardi Gras to funeral atmosphere. At what point do curses become self-fulfilling prophecies? I would encourage people to watch Catching Hell just for all the handheld video footage shot by fans at the crowd and what they're talking about and just the, the discussion about the energy and stuff. I feel like the entire stadium choked a little bit. It's a good point. I mean, I guess having never been to a baseball game, I'm not sure what the atmosphere is like there. But yeah, I mean, when something as big as that happens and then it's followed up very, very closely by a very routine double play turning into an error, it would be hard to keep the energy up and keep sort of, come on, guys, keep going, keep going. It's like, well, we've just kind of thrown away what should be a surefire win. And all of a sudden, like in the space of 20 minutes, We've gone from a 3 nothing lead to an 8-3 deficit. I mean, are you going to stay up during that? I don't know. And this is why I find sports curses so fascinating because they're almost self-fulfilling prophecies. They are. They bring on a life of their own. And so I don't believe in kind of the mystical nature of curses, but I believe in the fact that as a collective, vibe and energy can change the way people behave. And it's so fascinating. There was another game. Mm. There was another game. They had a chance to redeem themselves. But apparently so many of the Cubs fans were talking as if it was a fait accompli that they were going to lose. It was fascinating. So they were almost damned before they even began. Well, that's the crazy thing about it. Chicago actually led game seven, five to three in the bottom of the fourth inning. But ultimately they go on and lose the game nine to six. So you're very right. Like the whole fait accompli, the whole self-fulfilling prophecy side of things is probably very accurate in this case. Because they are, they're in a very good position. You're up two runs. Okay, bottom of the fourth is still early-ish stages of the game. But, I mean, any lead is, is a lead. I mean, yeah, just, yeah. you would take it, especially after what happened in game six. So it's quite a sad story. I've already talked about the arsehole chant that just engulfed the entire stadium. Poor Steve is sitting there with his headphones on, kind of looking sullen. He was actually there with two friends. They've stood up. He's still sitting down. It looks like he's there on his own. His friends choke. They choke their friendship. Yeah, they did. Because so people were hurling beers at him and stuff. People were yelling out, like, I'm going to fucking kill you. All sorts of, like, he's getting death threats and stuff. Poor guy. He just, oh, I feel for him so bad. So at one point when I'm watching the doco for the first time, I'm thinking, geez, have security choked here? But security did do a decent job. It took a little while. And things got out of hand quickly, but they did manage to whisk him away and change his appearance and this, that, and the other. He couldn't get a hold of his friends, though, which is a really dirty act, I reckon. Mm. I I don't care how... I mean, they were probably going for the catch, too. I don't care how disappointed they were. That's a dog act. So their choke is 10 out of 10, choking friendship. Yep, okay. Okay, we've got like five different levels. And that's why I find this to be such a fascinating story. And obviously we're skating past it really quick. And uh, by the way, shout out to our Stephen Bradbury episode, speaking of skating past things. Ah, Go and check that one out. 
but you know, I'd encourage people to, it, it just makes me want to learn more and more about this story. It is such an amazing story. It's a really funky atmosphere afterwards. There's crowds around the stadium. It's really lucky he got away unscathed. But geez, that walk from his seats to the security office, it's tough, man. Like people are hurling beers at him. People are like shouting at him. They're trying to cover his face, but one guy rips his shirt down so everyone can see him. After the game, even the goddamn governor, Rod Blagojevich, said in an interview, if someone ever convicts that guy of a crime, he'll never get a pardon out of this governor. Like, wow, wow. you're a nice guy. But what makes it worse, the press released his address. That's disgraceful. It is. So the press choked. That's a 10 out of 10 choke. Like, I mean, okay, the press aren't known to be the most moral and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the moral compass is always pointing south, isn't it? <laughs> but that's just so terrible. And this is all done before Game Seven's even played. If, if they win Game 7, all's forgotten and it's a bit of a laugh probably. But to release his address, I mean, people were camped outside his house the way the press camped outside of OJ's house. OJ fucking nearly decapitated someone. All this guy did was drop a ball. Mm. Like, oh, it just, it breaks your heart. It really does. It's really tough. Yeah, it does. A couple of other little bits and pieces before we get on to legacy. So as I mentioned, he was a little league coach. Irony of ironies, the house he lived in was basically on the left field line of a local mini baseball field. Wow. Wow. <laughs> the good thing is that all his players, past, present, and maybe future, came out to support him. So that was really nice. That got on the news and they were saying he was a good guy. He loved baseball. He actually released a statement. So I'm going to read you the statement he released. He was clearly so shaken up by all this. To Moises Alou, the Chicago Cubs organization, Ron Santo, Ernie Banks, and Cub fans everywhere, I am so truly sorry from the bottom of this Cub fan's broken heart. There are few words to describe how awful I feel and what I have experienced within these last 24 hours. I've been a Cub fan all of my life and fully understand the relationship between my actions and the outcome of the game. So it really hurt this guy. A couple of other really interesting things. Bartman Halloween costumes were, were, were gangbusters, Ooh. particularly in Chicago, but I think throughout the entire USA around Ooh. that period. Ouch. <laughs> the other thing that's cool. So, well, this is cool and wrong in a way. So after Bartman drops the ball, Another guy picks it up and initially like displays it to the crowd. Yay, yay. And this bar owner goes, mate, you don't want to be happy about this because yeah. like this should have been an out. He sold the ball for $100,000 and managed to keep his identity hidden. Meanwhile, Bartman didn't get a single cent from any of this. Isn't that sad too? Mm. Now, the funny thing is that Harry Carey's restaurant bought it so that they could publicly destroy it as a way of attempting to break the curse. Nice. Didn't work though. Well, well. <laughs> well, I mean, it didn't, it didn't. It kind of did. So let's get on to legacy. So we'll just quickly, I guess, run through what happened after that series. So the Marlins would go on to beat the Yankees in six games in the World Series and get that pennant, which is obviously going to be very hard for any Cubs fans to watch. Yes. And look, they were a good Marlins team. Oh, they were. They had a lot of good players. A lot of good players. They should have lost still. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you know. For the Cubs, it took another 13 years to finally win their National League pennant and the World Series, breaking the curse after 108 years. I know, it's nuts, isn't it? It really is. But here's the story of redemption. Yeah, after they finally won that World Series in 2016, they did one of the nicest things you could possibly imagine, giving a championship ring to Bartman. Oh, it's awesome, isn't it? As if to basically say, look, all is forgotten, water under a bridge. Yep. 
we're so happy that you're still a fan, all that sort of stuff. And I thank God, really, because it, it just it kind of ruined his life in some ways. He yeah. was only in his mid twenties at the time. He was pretty young. Well, from what I saw, the actual organization was very classy about it after it happened, basically saying, look, it's not his fault. It's something that happened, but we can't blame this guy for the fact that we lost a baseball game. Yeah. Like he's a fan. He's just like any one of you. And it wasn't blatant. It was line ball and it was a knee jerk reaction. And indeed, a lot of people in the doco said everyone would have gone for that ball. Maybe I would have. Maybe I would have. Who knows? I like to think that in the context, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. It's hard to know. And look, even the next year, though, if we've obviously talked about the fact they broke the curse, but you know, the Cubs were even better than they were that year, the year after. So after all the fallout from the Bartman incident, they actually managed to get a better record than the previous season. But the Astros surged home to take the lead in the divisional and wildcard standings, wow. and they missed the playoffs. Wow. So yeah, really, just it's just a crazy story. I mean, a lot of the players were never the same. You know, Mark Pryor and Kerry Wood, both took massive steps backwards because of injuries. And there was just all sorts of things that, that went on for that team. And thank God they managed to get something out of it 2016. Do we rate the team choke? That's the only choke we haven't rated here. I think it's pretty high. It's massively high. I mean, you talk about, as I say, the error. We talk about the pitching. You know, one of the pitchers basically said, a lot of this is on me because there was a, a really key moment in one of the pitch counts where he had an 0-2 lead on this guy and threw something straight down the middle and kind of missed his pitch and resulted in a double that I think it was the one that drove in three runs. So, And on Catching Hell, a lot of people say if Moises Alou handled the situation better, it wouldn't have been even nearly as bad as it was within the crowd. So maybe the whole atmosphere doesn't change if Moises Alou doesn't remonstrate. Now, look, his reaction is a very human one. It's a very understandable one, to be honest, especially yeah. in the championship game when you're on the brink of making that World Series. So I do understand it. But hey, maybe things are different then too. I think ironically, the lowest choke level is probably actually Bartman. In a weird way, maybe it is. Uh, yeah, he's probably only a two or a three out of 10. Yep. Do the Bartman. <laughs> Can you think of a great sporting choke that the boys should talk about? Email sportblokes at gmail.com or find them on Twitter at sportblokes. So, Stewie, I guess the whole episode for me is sports that I'm not a massive fan of, I'll be honest. And it's more about the narrative and the story that I'm interested in. I think this one fits in the context of one thing we can relate to with North American USA is they think they can win everything. As Aussies, we tend to think we should win everything. We've talked about it in Choke Special 1 with Sally Robbins, for example. When we looked a little bit further down the line, we realised it was maybe not that clear cut. Well, their population's massive, so they're probably it is, thinking, yeah. we've got enough people that we can be good at everything. And they have more, probably more of a right to have that view than we do. Oh, yeah. But I think that's an interesting context within which we sit. Now, that being said, this story is really a David and Goliath battle because the country they lost to only had about 1.3 million at the time from my memory. So, yeah, fascinating. Your memory is pretty much spot on, I dare say. Oh, there you go. Well done. So we go back to the 2017 qualifier for the Soccer World Cup between the US men's national soccer team and the might of Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, TNT, dynamite. Dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> well done. So the US national soccer team flew down to Trinidad for the final match of the fifth round of qualifying for the 2018 Football World Cup. They'd just beaten Panama 4-0 in Orlando, and while they weren't at their best in the qualifiers, they looked like they were pretty comfortably going to get through. The USA would play Trinidad and Tobago, Mexico would travel to Honduras, and Costa Rica would travel to Panama. 
This presented 27 different scenarios that were possible from those three games. But the only one of those that would eliminate the US would be if they lost to Trinidad and Tobago, Honduras beat Mexico, and Panama defeated Costa Rica. If any of those three results were even a draw, the USA were safe. This could scarcely be more unlikely to happen. And this is, it goes back to what we've discussed a few times in a number of specials and episodes. The idea that it's almost fateful. Mm. It's like the Bradbury one. Again, we recorded that today, so it's fresh in my mind. It's almost fate that TNT had to win this one. Yep. So Honduras and Mexico were up first, and with a spot in the top three or four available, the top three advanced, the fourth would play a home and away series against Australia. Honduras recovered from one goal down twice to beat Mexico 3-2. About an hour later, Panama got an 88th-minute winner from Roman Torres to defeat Costa Rica 2-1. Costa Rica had already qualified, and they'd sewn up second spot, so they weren't really that bothered. It still looked unlikely to even matter for the US, though. Trinidad and Tobago had lost eight of their nine qualifying games, including their last six, and had long since been eliminated from contention. So with no real reason to put the effort in, TNT rolled out a B-side. It was such a non-event that only 1,500 people turned up, easily the lowest crowd from the five rounds of the qualifying stages, better in the 5,002 from Honduras' trip to Trinidad, and it represented about 15% of the stadium's capacity. That stadium is actually named Addo Bolden Stadium after the second yeah. fastest, yeah, second fastest hundred meter sprinter in Trinidad and Tobago history. Have we seen the one with the shades? Did he wear the shades? I mean, I do remember him. Yeah. I mean, he probably did. Yeah, they were all pretty cool. Those yeah. guys. So. <laughs> and I think to sum up how big a David and Goliath story this is, as you mentioned before, the Trinidad and Tobago population hovered at just around one point three million. At that stage, the US was just over 323 million. Well, that's right, yeah. About 250 times the population. It's nuts. It is absolutely crazy. But then one of the craziest nights of football happened. I've read this likened to anything from a slow-motion train wreck to the Twilight Zone. <laughs> in the 17th minute, a cross is driven in and was awkwardly shanked to the back post and over Tim Howard's head by American defender Omar Gonzalez. Not a good episode for people named Gonzalez. <laughs> True. It really isn't. <laughs> So the score is now 1-0. And the first time Trinidad and Tobago had scored against America in nine years. Wow. 36 minutes in and Alvin Jones caught the Americans off guard, blasting a ball from about 30 yards out. Howard didn't even look like he saw it until it was right on him. And all of a sudden, Trinidad and Tobago were 2-0 up. What is going on? They're already in a hole, but it's the B team. They can come back from this. Absolutely, they can. Now, Christian Pulisic got one back for the USA early in the second half. But the biggest moment came in the 77th minute when Clint Dempsey had his shot from outside the 16-yard box turned onto the upright, just clipped it. But Adrian Fonset and Trinidad and Tobago turned everything else away and the Yanks threw a bunch at them. The final score, 2-1. And I watched the highlights. There was some good goalie work from that Trinidad and Tobago bloke. There was. He saved some pretty close ones. He did. So insanely, the US had lost, and for the first time since the 1986 World Cup, when the vast majority of the country didn't have a clue what soccer even was, <laughs> they had failed to qualify. Yes. Now, I did just want to go back to 1989 for a second. In the last game of each nation's qualifying for the 1990 World Cup, both the USA and Trinidad and Tobago had a record of three wins, three draws, and a loss. They played each other with the winner qualifying and the loser being eliminated. And I've seen the footage of this one. Slightly bigger crowd. A little bit bigger, yeah. Well, this was in America, so it made, made a bit of a difference. Yeah. Now, the USA won that match 1-0, and on that Trinidad and Tobago team was none other than Philibert Jones, the father of Alvin Jones, 
who scored the second goal in that match. Yeah, I, I found this out when I was watching YouTube as well. Crazy stuff. Good old Philibert. So I guess that is the incident in a nutshell. And it's, it's an absolutely crazy one. It almost defies belief that a team from Trinidad and Tobago, not even their real team, their second team, yeah, yeah. could actually beat the first team of the USA. But it happened. The funny thing that stuck out to me was the own goal. And the commentary, like the, he's like, oh, trick shot there from Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, no, yeah. no. It, unless the trick is making the opposition kick an own goal, yeah. there is no trick shot. Controlled his leg, basically. <laughs> yeah. So there's a bit of legacy to look at for this one. Now, the USA have qualified for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, so it wasn't all bad. Unfortunately, with World Cups, though, the issue is that you do have to wait at least four A long years. time. Yeah, yeah. it's four years. But there was fallout. Qualification to the World Cup is about $9 million. They also lose out on the revenue from friendlies, sales from games in the following years, and, look, they lost a bit of sponsorship. And you also lose money if the nation isn't as interested in you if they don't think, because let's face it, we all like winners, don't we? We do. Yeah. But it's kind of funny because the US men's soccer fans had actually said, a number of them, that they kind of almost expected this to happen. Yes. So it it is kind of funny. They love the winners, but at the same time, they'd almost embraced being losers, kind of similar to the Chicago Cubs fans. Well, maybe they were a bit more realistic than some fan bases are. Yeah, that's quite possible. Yeah. It was actually estimated that the financial loss to US men's soccer was in the tens of millions. And that's assuming that they didn't qualify for the later rounds of the tournament where the payout increases. Even higher, yeah. But America is still rich (laughs) and there's still a massive soccer following. So when you look at it that way, it probably meant a little bit less than if we're talking about one of the African nations or, I don't know, somewhere in South America potentially. So the financial fallout maybe isn't quite as big a deal as it would have been for so many other nations. Now, as I mentioned, Shui, I'm not a massive soccer guy, so I did have to rely on others a little bit here. And it was interesting to hear you talk about the fan base and and maybe, I guess, their realistic expectations. So it is a bit of a lengthy quote here. It's kind of a few bits and pieces that I've cut out of an article by Parker Cleveland, USA versus Trinidad and Tobago, what we learned. I quote, coming out and making the same bet that those obscenely rare CONCACAF goals wouldn't go in, gambling that the opposing team would be as accommodating and as foolish as Panama was, and wagering that the same players would have the same type of performance in CONCACAF qualifying is something that Bruce Arena was brought in to coach the team because he should have known better than to make those kinds of assumptions. He didn't, and the US paid for it. In my life as a sports fan, and we're going to come full circle here, I've rarely felt true deep sadness from a team I follow. When I was 18, the Cubs blew a 3-1 lead to miss a chance to make the World Series. Where have we heard that before? Indeed. (laughs) Last February, the Atlanta Falcons choked away a 28-3 lead to lose the Super Bowl. Where have we heard that one before? (laughs) Those were deflating, soul-crushing losses. (laughs) Deflating. Deflating. (laughs) Where the callousness of the ability of sports to replace joy and hope with dread and then misery was showcased in its most brutal ruthlessness. So he didn't make any reference to Sally Robbins, I see. <laughs> yeah, it's about the only one he did it. Sure, going into the match, the US was sitting in third place in Hex and would have been on the way to Russia had the qualifying round ended Friday. But making it into the tournament in 2018 never felt like a sure thing that was cruelly taken away. Perhaps it was the way the game played out with Trinidad and Tobago taking an early lead and the US looking so inept throughout the match. Or maybe it was knowing that if the US lost there was a chance that they wouldn't qualify that makes the loss feel less devastating. 
The loss to Mexico and then the complete surrender to Costa Rica set the stage for what would be a difficult hex. The loss to Costa Rica and a last-minute draw at Honduras in two uninspired performances in the round before this one made it clear the US was backing into the Men's World Cup rather than charging into it. And that's something I've heard a lot. A lot of people were saying that wouldn't have made a shit of a difference because if they get in, they're not going to do anything. And I can actually talk about that because there were a couple of different scenarios. If they had slid into fourth place and beaten Australia in the play-in... Which and is, that's the funny thing. Yeah, they would have played us. Which yeah. is no guarantee. They would have encountered France, Denmark and Peru like Australia did in Group C, which is not an easy group to get out of. The Danes and the French in particular, very, very good teams. And those South American teams can play too. Yeah, so they're probably not getting out of that. If they finish third, it's possibly worse. Germany, England and Tunisia in Group G. So they're probably not getting out of that one either. Mm. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting that you say that because they were. They were very much limping over the line and they were in form that says they probably wouldn't have got out of the group stage anyway. So it's hard to rate this choke, isn't it? You wonder if this is more of a story of, like I said, almost fate because of all these occurrences that had to line up. And I tell you what, the odds would have been astronomical that they would all happen. Maybe one happens, maybe two happens. The fact that they all happened is nuts. It's huge. So maybe that's the bigger story here rather than the choke. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, if you take it as it is, the two teams lined up on paper, okay, it's an away game, but you're still playing on the same surface as you would have been playing. Okay, maybe, you know, from our experience being in the, in the Caribbean, the, Caribbean <laughs> think about Antigua. the grounds aren't necessarily <laughs> the best that, that you'd expect, but you still would expect that American team to beat that Trinidad and Tobago team probably 99 times out of 100. Mm. And the other one you'd expect to be a draw. Yeah. So there's just, yeah, there's really no excuse for that. So I think if you look at it on its own, the choke, like the actual game itself, the choke's pretty high. But if you look at the legacy that it left, it's not actually that bad. Yeah. Because as I said, we weren't expecting that they would do anything if they made the group stages. The money, eh, they don't care. They're rich. They've got enough money in there. So I think it's kind of, if you balance the two out, I think the legacy is probably, I don't know, like a four and a half. The actual game itself is maybe an eight and a half and nine. Yeah, the B team thing, I think, makes it a higher choke. Yeah. It's, I don't know, maybe middle of the pack, five or six. I've got it as a six, six and a half. But yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there's much of a difference between a five and a six in this case. But yeah, it's a horrible result, but not the worst legacy in the world. And I guess we'll see somewhat soon how the Americans go in the next one in Qatar. And I guess as we found in doing these choke specials, there's always more than meets the eye. It seems like a straightforward choke, but the more context, the more research we do, the more interesting it gets. And in some cases, they're possibly not even chokes at all. Mm. But we've got to look at them before we can even determine that. What do you think? Have you heard the other choke specials? If not, what are you waiting for? Check out episodes 72, 75, and 102. You'll find links in the description, you lazy buggers. All right, Stewie, you know what that music means. Final thoughts time. Well, a couple of really interesting chokes, a couple of really different sets of ramifications, but also some great stories of redemption. I guess the big thing for me out of the Bartman story, just people be nice to each other. Don't be dicks. Yes, indeed. Doing the Bartman was very different when I was a kid. There is no need to give people death threats. 
Yes, we love sport as much as the next person. We hate losing. We hate losing in difficult circumstances, but we would never tell someone that we're going to kill them. It's never life or death, people. It's really not. Lots of fun once again. Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.